That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We live in fear. Fear of failure, commitment, each other, and beyond. It's one of the few things that unites us all. Salem, Massachusetts knows this more than most, which is why Salem Horror Fest will return this October to explore societal themes of fear and anxiety in the Halloween capital of the world. Prepare yourself for two weeks of terror with screenings, panels, podcasts, special guests, parties, premieres, and more in the haunted and historic Witch City. Raise hell with Linnea Quigley and George C. Romero. Conjure demons with the faculty of horror and repent before the latest film from Darren Lynn Bowsman. Behold Wolfman's Nards with Monster Squad's Andre Gower and relive your kinder trauma for the New England premiere of the Scary Stories documentary. Ryan Turek will present the opening night keynote speech on October 4th, followed by the 30th anniversary celebration of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Cassandra Peterson. Tickets and weekend passes are available now. To overcome fear, we must first understand it. SalemHorror.com And just a note. I first went to Salem when I was researching the script I was writing for Hocus Pocus, and I was so blown away by it and the celebration that they give to Halloween and that season, I went back for another four or five years in a row. It's an amazing place, and this is an amazing place to have a festival like this. As horror fans, why are we drawn to the genre? What scares you? Is it maniac slashers, monsters from another world, creepy kids, spiders, or is it death? I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are so many theories about why horror movies appeal to people, but it only matters what scares you. Horror is personal, but it's also universal. For a lot of us, it's being able to face our fears and make ourselves stronger. For others, it's a test of our mettle to see how much we can really take and come through it alive and kicking. If you're young, it might be to embrace something your parents would never enjoy. And sometimes it's just the pure outrageousness of splattering the screen with blood and guts and everything nasty, a rebellious dose of rude, anti-establishment transgression for its own sake. A lot of people grow out of their love for the genre as they mature, and for them, well, so be it. Not everybody loves horror, especially as they reach adulthood. For others among us, like me, for example, it remains a passion, a way to tell stories more deeply, to delve more extensively into the most primal of our fears and emotions. We deal with death by sharing stories about it, and the more you confront it in real life, the more it deepens you. Writers and filmmakers in the genre who have been in it for a long time, like Stephen King, Clive Barker, David Cronenberg, Joe Dante, reach deeper into their hearts and guts than ever before, and the genre evolves with them. I don't ever want to stop evolving as a human being and as a filmmaker and storyteller. And I still love a cinematic bloodbath on its own terms just to provoke and transgress. But as my hair grays, I don't want my heart to follow. 
I don't ever want to forget what made me want to try to scare you with my stories in the first place. But maybe I can take you with me on a sanguinary expedition to the deeper realms of life and death and what scares us. Fred Decker's passion for the genre is obvious in everything he's written and directed. He's a guy who has written and directed Night of the Creeps and the Monster Squad and has a long list of credits every horror fan has embraced, including the screenplay for the new reboot of The Predator. We'll find out what makes Fred tick right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally. To the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. You started out loving comic books. Was that your kind of entry into the genre or the fantastic? Or did you, did movies come first? I'd say movies came first. Uh, I, I wasn't a terribly athletic kid, and I spent a lot of uh, misbegotten time in front of the TV. But, but my dad was a film buff from youth. So he went to the movies in the, really? in the you know, late 30s and 40s. And, and uh, so whenever there was a black and old black and white movie on TV, my dad would point out the character actors. He goes, look, that's uh, William Bendix. That's uh, you know, Frank Phelan. And, and so I never had a problem with watching old movies. And once I stumbled upon uh, a monster movie... Uh, I was insatiable. So those were really... The, what was the first one? God. Do you remember? Uh, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to say King Kong, mm. the original, only because it's probably... And I've seen a lot of movies. I would say probably that's the one I've seen most often. Yeah. I would, I would say good, a good 50 times I've seen in my Son life. Son of Kong was the first one for me. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Funny. Uh, it's funny you should say that. Mike Mignola, who, does, who created Hellboy... Never saw the first Planet of the Apes, but he, at a formative age, saw Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh. So that's the one that shaped him. Wow. Strange, huh? It's like your first Mexican restaurant is the one you set the standard for all others <laughs> by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Kong was, uh, remains one of my favorite movies of all time. And, and I was just always drawn to the weird and the fantastic. And, you know, it took me many years to, to enjoy westerns and romance and all the other genres. Because uh, uh, because for some reason uh, I was a little bit of an outcast and and I was how drawn. unusual in this genre. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, we have dinners occasionally. Uh, we jokingly call ourselves the masters of horror dinners um, that you've come to, uh, and, uh, and a, a bigger group of outcasts I've never seen. <laughs> <laughs> it's what bonds us. I, I really want to thank you, just on a personal note, for inviting me into that cabal because it really it it. it there's a value there that, that, that I really feel strongly about, that you know, we all share this, and it, it meant a lot to me. Well, there's a brotherhood and sisterhood that binds us that other genres don't seem to perpetuate. Mm. You know? uh, and your movies, the, the ones you've written and directed, particularly um, Monster Squad and Night of the Creeps, both have a sense of nostalgia about them. What is your connection to 
the the sense of history and this kind of affection for the the genre movies of the past. Night of the Creeps has very much roots in the blob in a way. A lot of the sure. shots are even similar in the opening. Sure. So tell me what bonds you to that. Is it because of childhood connection? Yeah, very much. I mean, I was a fan uh, from a very early age, and you know, paid attention to the credits and and started to pay attention to the. The, the special effects uh, designers, the Ray Harryhausens of the world, and the and the directors and the writers, and so when I got my shot to make my first feature, I felt like, uh, in a way, uh, Night of the Creeps is kind of a, 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 a mishmash. It's it's a hell's a poppin of of <laughs> all those movies that I saw when I was young. I just took all of these cliches. Let's get you know, let's get some aliens from space and some zombies and a two-fisted gumshoe and some cute <laughs> sorority girls and drop them in the blender and hit the puree button and see what comes out. So uh, it was a very conscious pastiche, I think, that movie. Um, but in retrospect, um, I, I'm, I'm, I hated that movie for years. After, really? Yeah. Why would that be? I just, all I saw was my mistakes. You've had mm. this experience. Of course. You just watch something and you go, oh, God, what a horrible day. And if you don't, you're a hack. Yeah. Um, but I'm beginning to appreciate the things that um, I did purely subconsciously. I've, begin, I've begun to realize that our, our job as filmmakers is, is partially conscious, but a lot of it is just following our, our gut. And I feel like whatever I was, whatever I was going through, whoever I was when I made that movie, that that there was something very pure about it, apart from the pastiche. But yeah, there's lots of tributes to every kind of uh, of genre movie. Uh, well, the characters are named Cronenberg and Carpenter and Hooper. That's and, right. And it's Corman University that's and right. all of that. That was very conscious. And then you can see me stealing from... John Landis and John Hughes and Ridley Scott and all those guys, not just the horror films, but the, 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 the youth comedies of the time were very influential to me too. Yeah, but if you like it, it's, it's a tribute. If you don't like it, then it's stealing. So right. I like it. <laughs> I see it as a tribute. I appreciate it. Yeah. But there's also a sweetness and an, an affection about it. These me- movies are horror films, but they're not mean-spirited horror films. I really appreciate you saying that. I don't know that that's something that people say a lot about my work, but um, I think that's just, again, my gut. It's not, I was never interested in how bloody or how violent or how uh, nauseating we can make this. It was always about who are the characters, do we care about them, and uh, are, are we in a strange way going to be moved by this little journey they go on, even though it involves zombies and Right. space aliens. Yeah, but they're not mean-spirited movies. There's grotesquery among them. Right. But these two films in particular, well, even more so with Monster Squad, mm-hmm. there's an embracement of, of youth. The, you know, Monster yeah. Squad, if you're 12 years old, it's got to be your favorite movie. Well, and I've heard that from many uh, people who saw it when they were 12, and, and it's true. It's it, it was intended kind of, and again, I think maybe subconsciously when Shane Black and I wrote it, to be a sort of youth empowerment movie that the adults don't get it. The adults are, are, are uh, embittered and, and, and realistic and they don't believe in monsters and the kids are completely open to it so they're the only ones that can solve the problem. Right. I think that's, I think, you know, that was what we were going for. Well, 
embracing these monsters. This was a TriStar movie, not a Universal movie. I imagine you had trademark issues to deal with in the designs of the creatures, particularly Frankenstein's monster mm-hmm. and things Absolutely, like that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we actually submitted it to Universal uh, when we finished the screenplay. Which would seem to be the obvious home for Right, and because I'm a... a, 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 a a monster kid. I wanted to use the Jack Pierce makeup designs to the to the sure. to the degree that we could, and it was really interesting because that was a whole different time than now, when everything is about building franchises and creating uh, um, universes that are connected. Yeah. And and they had they just said we're these this intellectual property means nothing to us. <sighs> we're, we're happy to put Frankenstein on a coffee cup at the at the Universal you know Studios tour. But you know, making movies about the, these these characters is, is not interesting to us. It at all. made the studio. Those <laughs> monsters made the studio. It's ironic it, that then, you know, now thirty years later, they try to to do it all over again as a Marvel universe and not as a set of horror movies, right. which is right. is unfortunate, right. to, especially at a time when horror seems to be bigger than ever. It's but, very interesting. But they want to turn them into Marvel. They want to, yeah, action movies. They want to follow in the in the footsteps of of Kevin Feige and those guys who are doing a wonderful job. Yeah, but um, yeah, Universal passed on it, and I was very lucky. Uh, I think that Stan Winston and I were kind of fated to to work together because I had worked with Steve Miner, who I'm sure you know. Oh yeah, on, on my first screenplay, and he was friends with Stan and. And I just we were sort of just these two ships that kept passing in the night. And and Peter Hyams, I think, suggested we bring Stan in to do the the uh, the monsters in Monster Squad. And he was a monster kid too. I mean, for for all of his genius and and his accomplishment, he he started out just like us as just a kid in front of the the, the movie screen or the TV. Well, it's it's interesting. All of these names you just mentioned are people like. On Amazing Stories, uh, Stan Winston did go to the head of the class, which I had written, which Robert right. Zemeckis with directed. Christopher Lloyd, yeah. With Christopher Lloyd. Um, Peter Hyams directed an episode that I wrote called The Amazing Falls Worth. One of my favorites, with Gregory Hines. Uh, Gregory Hines, uh-huh. yes. Um, and you, you had Bruce Broughton do music That's right. for Monster Squad, That's who right. had done uh, Amazing Stories episodes as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... The 80s was an amazing time of an explosion in the world of fantastic film, in television and in film. And you were making movies which would now be independent films, but these were by a studio. They were for TriStar. Yeah. Yeah, they were studio movies. I mean, they weren't weren't as expensive as as movies that are made today by any stretch. but, uh, But yeah, they were studio movies. And were they both made in Los Angeles? Uh, They were. Night of the Creeps was um, uh, shot predominantly um, in North Hollywood. We found an old Sears that had been oh, abandoned. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know exactly where, where that the is. TV Academy is now. Yeah, um, at Lancashire and uh, uh, near near yeah, uh, Chandler. Yeah. yeah, and Magnolia, right? And um, we just owned it for a couple of months, and and so the the, the interior of the alien spaceship is was in there. Tom Atkins' apartment was in there. Uh, the, the the cryogenic lab we built all that stuff in in Sears, and then we went over to USC and UCLA and did some of the uh, the college stuff. Yeah, I certainly recognize UCLA and the multicolored brick uh, in right. Night of the Creeps. There. Which is fun because I had only graduated three years earlier. From UCLA? Yes. And uh. our first day, day one of my first feature was in Royce Quad at UCLA. So I got to sort of, you know, like I was like a peacock with my feathers up. Like <laughs> Revisiting. Yeah, yeah, it was very exciting. And um, did you study film at UCLA? No, the film school wouldn't have me. 
<laughs> I, 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 um, I uh, tried to get in, but they, they weren't interested in me. So I was an English major. Ah, that's but, always useful for a career. Well, and for <laughs> storytelling, I think. Yes. Uh, I, I was, it, it was definitely a fallback. But what I found was that I made f- this incredible group of friends. Um, some were in the film school. Some mm-hmm. were in other. I mean, Ed Solomon, who, you know, wrote Men in Black and the Now You See Me movies. He was an econ major. And right. his buddy Chris Matheson, right, the son of Richard, son Matheson. of Richard Matheson, yeah, yeah. And, and they worked as a writing team for years. Yeah, and yeah. and Tim Robbins was there starting the Actors Gang after having come from New York, and wow. and I met Shane Black and Shane Black and, and Ethan Wiley and Ethan Wiley and, and, and Ryan Rowe and 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 Jim Hersfeld and David Silverman, who's the director on The Simpsons. I mean, and we were all just a bunch of. Um, you know, beer drinking, you know, girl chasing college guys, right? And but we had this love of movies, and yeah. some of us wanted to be actors, and some of us wanted to be directors, and some wanted to be writers. And uh, and I'm friends with these guys to this day. And so that was really really wasn't about the curriculum at UCLA. It was about cr- creating that group and being a part of that. Well, as a storyteller, uh, there are so many different media to pursue, whether it's fiction or what. Was was writing first for you, or did you always have designs on being a director? Uh, I'll be honest, I never had any interest in writing at all. Really? No. But a filmmaker. Is it was what a you means to, to be. an end because at that time, my heroes were guys like Francis Ford Coppola and Lawrence Kasdan, and and going back to Preston Sturgis and oh, John Huston, yeah. who were guys that you know started as writers in order to be directors. So right. I, I've always thought of myself as 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 a director in a writer's body. Ah, and yet you've been writing for all of these years since mm. the eighties. What about directing? Uh, is it still your passion? Absolutely. Yeah. Because to me, to me it, it's, it's fun to render a scene and be happy with it, and, and there's no few greater joys than, you know, typing the last page of a screenplay. Mm-hmm. It's like running a marathon. You're a runner, you know. Imagine, you know, like, it's just, just this long, long haul, and then you're done, and you can breathe finally. But directing is where you put it on its feet, and, and you make it real, and if... You know, we talk about imagination and, you know, you're, you're beautifully written forward. I mean, we're talking about those chambers in the mind where you create these things like a mad scientist. But to not have them be – to not see them in the flesh is, is – can be very frustrating. I mean, you know, staying in your head or staying on the page is, is fine. But to be on a set and see something you've created, you know, become real with actors and makeup and costumes and sets, it's um, – it's the best. And yet they are such completely different disciplines. They couldn't be more different. You write by yourself in a tunnel, <laughs> in a cave, and no one is around you. And when you're on a set, there's 100 people bustling around you at all times and right. pushing you exactly, up the hill. Exactly. You're right. hurrying. Yeah. Exactly. Writing is lonely and you wish somebody would talk to you and <laughs> directing is, okay, and I, I answered that question 15 times yesterday and now <laughs> here comes 50 more questions. It's ex- exactly right. You're right. It's the opposite. So were you always interested in various genre of films or was it mostly in the horror and fantasy world? It was mostly horror, fantasy, science fiction. Um, but I, I honestly feel that if I had it to, to do over again, I might not have gone that route. But remember, the early 80s, this is, we, we started roughly the same time. You, you, you yeah. preceded me uh, by a couple of years. But, but that was a time like now when 
those genres were very commercial and relatively easy to set up mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to do a straightforward thriller or a, or a movie star movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I think I, I, it was in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So I sort of took the, uh, the path of least resistance. But um, if I had to do, to do over again, I don't know that my career wouldn't have been very different if I'd sort of said, what do I really want to do? Um, and uh, I don't know what that would have been, but, but I'm happy with the, the path I took. Well, to be able to make your living doing what you love. Now, tell me about the first, was House the first movie that you worked on that got made? Yes. So tell me about how that came about. Well, uh, I, I desperately wanted to, to be a director and make a, a movie. And I did a little bit of homework in the sense that I knew that uh, if you have one location, that's going to be cheaper than a lot of locations. Mm-hmm. If you have one actor, that's going to be cheaper than a lot of actors. Mm-hmm. So, And I wanted to do a genre film because I wanted to make a scary movie. So I said, okay, I got my idea. It's a guy goes into a house at the beginning of the movie. And at the end of the movie, he comes out of the house. And in between is just the scariest shit I can come up with for 90 <laughs> minutes. And I called it House. Very simple, very straightforward. And uh, at that time, my, my pals in college that I told you about in post-college, we were all extremely enamored of The Twilight Zone. Uh, yes. And that was around the time that the movie uh, was coming out. And I, I'm a, a huge, huge fan of that movie. I really do love it. And we all said, let's all make our own Twilight Zone segments. And I came up with one about a Vietnam veteran who was haunted by an incident that occurred. And he's haunted by his, his, uh, sol- his buddy, a soldier who died uh, in, in uh, Vietnam. And that sort of morphed into the premise for House, mm-hmm. which became the William Catt character who's holding up in the house so that he can write this memoir of his experience. But the funny part was... And I had this great idea for this movie. I thought, this is going to be great, and it's going to be cheap. And I, I wanted to do it in black and white and have, yeah. it, have it be very sort of Billy Friedkin, Roman Polanski, just mm. really dark and edgy and weird and f- kind of like a European film. Right. And it certainly didn't end up that way. Well, <laughs> what happened was I never got around to writing it. Ah. I was busy doing this, uh, fil- uh, this script for Steve Miner, which was my first job in Hollywood. I was writing Night of the Creeps, and, and my college roommate, Ethan Wiley, said, are you ever going to write the house movie? And I said, yeah, one of these days. He goes, well, look, let me take a shot at it. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So he had all of the puzzle pieces. He knew kind of what it was, and he, I think he, he, he consulted me a bit. Right. But by and large, he just went off and wrote the movie. And uh, he brought the script to me and said, here it is. What do you think? Right. And I read it, and I, and I, I thought, but this is wonderful. It's just not at all the movie I was thinking. <laughs> it was kind of like, you know, I was thinking Dostoevsky, and he handed me Mad Magazine. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah. Um, and I showed it to – and I was really busy, and, and I, I didn't have – my career was sort of taking – we all have those 15 minutes – Yes. Of yep. your career where yep. it's like the phone doesn't stop ringing. Yeah, and, you're the hot guy for a week. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it was that week and I was like, you know, the house movie, I don't need it anymore because I might be able to get something else that I do. Right. So I showed it to Steve Miner, who, as I say, I was writing something for at that time, my first job in Hollywood, writing a script for Steve Miner, who had done Friday the 13th 2 and 3 and had worked right. with Sean on the first one. And right. Well, he produced the first one. He Friday produced one, 13th, that's right. Yeah. Uh, the first one. And so he, anyway, so he was sort of my mentor for a couple of years. And I mm-hmm. gave him the house script. 
And he said, I love this. I want to do it. I said, okay. He goes, I'm going to call Sean. He called Sean. Sean said, I'll get you the money. And we were wow. shooting within six months. <laughs> That's amazing. And that was my first. So did credit. you go to the set? I did. And how did you feel seeing something that had changed so radically from what you had originally envisioned into somebody else's vision? Well, I'm, I'm kind of philosophical about it. I have a couple of, and, and I'm sure you've had this experience too. You have scripts you write that you're invested in 100%, and then they're sort of taken over by, by step-parents. Yes. Um, and I've done that a couple of times, and there comes a point where I sort of relinquish the, the, the child to the step-parent because right. I feel like it's not mine anymore. They have more investment in it, and it's, I don't recognize really what it is anymore. And that kind of happened with this. I was, I was prepping Night of the Creeps. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I hired the editor on House, Michael Canoe, on right. Night of the Creeps because I, we got along and I sat in the cutting room with him on House. So I was already moving off in this other tangent. And so I was thrilled to have a movie with my name on it. Right. Two things going at the same right. time. That, How that, exciting is that? And Steve yeah. and Ethan and, and you know, Bill Cat and, and George Went and it's and it's a tremendous tremendous fun and people like it and they made like five of them and yeah. like, you know there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that and you get a paycheck for each one a little one <laughs> oh, oh, I must say though because I saw <laughs> oh, you, you weren't writers well guild I saw yet. you had Sean I saw you had Sean here on the on the podcast yes. um, I was writers guild because Steve um, uh, ushered me in uh-huh. but for okay. years I was convinced that Sean didn't pay me uh-huh. um, but I do get residuals now so he did oh good that's a good thing. <laughs> Well, tell me about that transition of being the writer guy who gets an opportunity to direct his first feature film. How did that come about? Was it through management or agents or or other relationships that you'd had? It was those things. It was also a degree of chutzpah. Um, this whole group I talk about, the uh, the UCLA mafia, we called ourselves the Pata guys. <laughs> and we were nothing if not full of ourselves. And so I wrote this script. I wrote it fairly quickly, uh, what became Night of the Creeps, and I gave it to my agent, David Greenblatt, who's one of the great, um, f- you know, famous agents. He, he co-created the Endeavor Agency, and now he's a manager, and he's, he's been sort of my, my uh, touchdown for my entire career. Really? So you're still connected? Yeah. That's amazing. So I said to him, you know, I really want to be a director. Here's this dumb little comic horror film. I don't know how much it'll cost. It's kind of wacky. But um, I wrote it very much to sort of jump off the page. If you ever look at the script, it's, it's a little hyperbolic. Uh-huh. I, t- I took a page from William Goldman, you know, where, you know, cut to the most beautiful girl you ever saw in your life. That sort, right. of, that sort of thing, where you read it and you go, this kid's got balls. You got to keep turning the pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I said, I want to direct it. And um, he um, showed it to a wonderful producer um, and a dear friend, uh, Chuck Gordon, who's Larry Gordon's brother. Right. And they made many movies together, The Die Hards and Field mm-hmm. of Dreams. and Big stuff. Waterworld. You can't get much bigger than that. <laughs> yes. And Chuck loved the script. And he said – and he called uh, Jeff Sigansky, who was head of TriStar at that time. Right. And he said, Jeff – Who had come out of CBS. Had, yeah. Who had come out of television, yeah. yeah. Lovely guy. And Casey Silver, who was his VP at that time, yeah. was also a wonderful guy. Who I wrote sure The Mummy for. There yeah, you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, good people. But <laughs> Chuck's story is that he, he called Jeff and he goes – he goes, Jeff, listen, I'm, I, this is going to all the studios this weekend, but I'm going to give you, you know, a 12-hour head start. So I'm sending, I'm sending it over. I'm messengering it to you right now, but you've got to read it right away because everybody else is going to see it. And of course, he was completely lying. <laughs> yeah. So the bullshit worked. It totally. Jeff said, I love it. Let's make it. So I was terrified. Really? 
I mean, I'd made my little movies, but I didn't have, I didn't know what screen direction is. So I didn't know what So this so fast that yeah. suddenly you were thrust into being a professional Director's Guild director. And I hadn't been in, in film school. Right. So, you know, master shot, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, and all What's of, a 35 millimeter lens? Yeah. <laughs> um, I started to, but I learned quickly in yeah. terms of lenses, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the movie has some real pace problems. Bob New shot riding the bullet for me. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah, the same DP as you had. That was a year or two later? Or? No, it was 2004. Oh, my gosh. In, up in Vancouver where he's from. Yeah. Well, I loved his reel and he, he, I loved his sense of color and stuff like that. Yeah. But I'm sure he found me... Uh, my analogy is, is Rip. I worked with Rip Torn once, and Rip Torn said, <laughs> "Rip Torn said to me, I feel like I'm a trained dog working for you.' Ooh, <laughs> and I and I actually took that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I would think he wouldn't take it. But yes, well, with his reputation, did. that's right. No, no, we we got along fine. But I think he was. I think I think Bob knew probably felt the same way. Kind of like the camera goes here. I mean, having worked you know recently with um, with Larry Fong on on Shane Black's movie, and and Shane sort of. Maybe we're over here somewhere. He's not a real – he's not Kubrick. He's not – he doesn't line up the shot and say, here's what it should be. He lets the DP shoot the movie. Right. It's like, Interesting. Here's, yeah. here's the flavor of it and I want to get enough coverage that we can cut this any way we want. Mm-hmm. But I was very Kubrickian, very So very specific. Worth. You knew what every shot was. Yeah. I storyboarded most of it and, mm-hmm. and you know, by the time I got a sense of what the lenses were, it was like I want the 24 on sticks here. Mm-hmm. And B camera here on a fifty, and I'm sure that the union crew was like <laughs> rolling their eyes. Who is this kid? Well, the visionaries have, make films that way. Well, yeah. the, the the movie suffers from it a little bit mm-hmm. because I didn't hedge my bets. Right, um, but there's also stuff in the movie that I'm very p- proud of because it's a little bit ballsy. It's a little bit you can't do that. Yeah. You know, I put Tom Atkins on a dolly and I spun the dolly around and (laughs) and then I did it again on a different lens and a different lens. And it's just, it's just him spinning around shooting a gun. Right. But I literally put him on the dolly so I could spin him 360 degrees to the camera. Fantastic. And people love, I mean, you know, I showed that at retro houses and people go, yeah, just because it's, it's, it's stylish. Well, as your first time out as a director, where did it open? What theater did you go to opening night? All right, now here's where the story gets. Do we have violin? Can we play some little violins? <laughs> Hit it. The, okay. uh, the 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 movie did not do well, and uh, I'm familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was released regionally, so it actually didn't open in L.A. Hmm. I did get to go to Times Square. Chuck Gordon and I and and some of the actors went to. Uh, a, a Times Square grindhouse and watched it. Really? It so it opened in the grindhouses. It played like gangbusters there. Yeah. And, it, and it did very well in Germany and it did wow. very well in... I saw it in a theater Japan. here opening week. Yeah, well, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it opened in theaters. Yes. Technically. <laughs> <laughs> but it did not do well. And it was... Yeah. It was... It would have been really heartbreaking for me except I was already working on the Monster Squad. Ah, okay. So you'd set up the next. We we'd set it up. In, in, yeah, I was in post on Creeps, and and uh, Rob Cohen, God bless him, and 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 Keith Barish and Peter Hyams, who was a hero of mine. This is a kind of a cool story. I just I loved Peter's films. I love right. Capricorn One, Capricorn and, One, incredible movie, and yeah. I love Hanover Street. I love Busting. I mean, all of his early films. I just thought were I was mm-hmm. crazy about. So I said to David Greenblatt, my agent, I'd love to meet Peter Hyams, and he sort of took me under his wing which was really very nice of him. 
That's amazing. Um, He's a tough guy. When we were working together on Amazing Stories, I saw him push the DP aside and say, no, yeah. I, I'm going to put this light here. It's our only source, yep. and we're going to shoot it this way. Mm-hmm. And it's like the DP is going, okay. Yep. And, and shortly thereafter started shooting his own movies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He shot all of his movies from that point on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he was he was tough. It was a, He was a father figure, but a stern one. and um, Tough love. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think ultimately that movie works um, in large part due to um, Shane's first draft script, which mm-hmm. uh, is uh, probably the best script that I've had to, to do. So Shane wrote the script by himself and then you rewrote it? We, yeah, we broke the story together. But uh-huh. Because I was working on Creeps, uh, I let him sort of go. And it was the second – I think it was the second or third script he'd ever written. And the first job – I mean I gave him his first job as a screenwriter um, as far as being a paid screenwriter. Wow. And uh, I, think the, I think the script's wonderful. It, it just, I, I, I didn't do a lot to it. But we had been in the trenches breaking the story and creating the characters and deciding what it was going to be. And, and you were both monster kids. Uh, yeah. Yeah. M- me more than him a little bit. Mm-hmm. He, he loved this old uh, series of books, The Three Investigators. He loves – he loves detective fiction, uh-huh. you know, the Hardy Boys and Nancy really? Drew. He knew all that stuff. So, wow. he, so he brought a little bit of the kid gang detective element to oh, it. Oh, that's cool. Um, but uh, I think I think it's it's Shane's script and and Peter's um, oversight. Really? So Peter was involved creatively. He was, and we sort of butted heads early on, and mm-hmm. there came a point where he sort of, I guess, decided that maybe I knew what I was doing. Uh-huh. So the end of the movie, uh, if you know the movie, the last yeah. two reels, which I think is the best part of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, I was completely on my own. It was me and Bradford May, the DP. And right, and, and Bradford May had done the Twilight Zone That's TV right. series around the same time. He had. With, and it was Andre, with, with an episode of, with Andre Gower, who's the star of The Monster Squad mm-hmm. as well. Right, right. So the Monster Squad really kind of pulls together everything cool about childhood. And and I we go back again to this nostalgic element of it that, you know, it's it's stuff that you miss. There weren't many movies like that made in the 80s. Mm-mm. And so tell me how that pitch went and how that went from pitch to movie. Well, I think uh, the one of the things, and I don't know if this was your experience. One of the things about the '80s was that it was ex- it, it was very open. It was it was a it was a wide field. You didn't have what you have now, which is this kind of compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always been genres. There's always been what is it? Is it a western? Right. Is it a romance? What's well, a western with some romance? Okay, but be careful. <laughs> yes. You know, don't exceed your boundaries. Right. Here. Exactly. Yeah. But in those days, there were, you know, tremendously odd. I mean, Terry Gilliam was making these very strange movies. And, and you know, I, I mean, if I had a list in front of me and I read some of these titles, you'd know them all and you've seen them. They're- well, the 70s and the 80s both were kind of uncontrolled, in, yeah. in, creatively uncontrolled. Yeah. There, there were opportunities to, to break the rules. Right. And you also had... These gunslinger executives like Casey and Jeff Zagansky who just said, we're betting on the kid. <laughs> yes. You know, well, let's bet on the kid. Yeah. So we got Keith Barish and Rob Cohen to produce this movie and Peter was uh, the, the kind of active producer. And we just wanted to make a fun kind of raucous, scary adventure movie. Right. Um, you know, the Goonies had been two, three years earlier. Mm-hmm. So there was a template Another for one it. I did, the making of the Goonies <laughs> documentary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so there's a template for it. 
Yeah. But it's and, and the Goonies did very well, obviously much better than the Monster Squad. But it's not like that's uh, a genre, uh, the kid adventure genre. I mean, it's a very niche niche genre. And what was interesting is that we finished the movie, and it was I think maybe better than I thought it was going to be uh-huh. in some ways. Yeah. Um, but they had no idea how to market it. They suddenly had to go. Okay, now we have to sell this movie. Right. What is it? Well, it's it's kids fighting monsters. Well, is it? Violent and scary? A little bit. Yeah. Well, the kids can't see it. Well, then teenagers. Well, teenagers think it's a kid's movie. Right. And they'll stay away. And that's exactly what happened. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, You know, parents wouldn't bring their kids because they were afraid their kids would be scared. Even though these were the monsters that the parents grew up with. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know uh, if if they had marketed it differently, if they would have found the sweet spot. Uh, I really don't. I think it was just, it was a feathered fish. It was the wrong movie at the wrong time. But what happened was all those kids whose parents wouldn't let them see it, mm-hmm. two years later, stay up on Saturday night on HBO. Right. And there it is. Home video on HBO made a lot of movies successful. Yep. I mean, Critters 2 was a disaster. Was it? And then when video happened, they made two more sequels and all of this. And it's like it <laughs> plays more now than it did then. Um, and and so when did you first get that feedback of there is an audience out there who has embraced this movie? Are you ready for this? Movie came out in 1987. Right. I got a call in 2007. Mm-hmm. 2007. From um, a guy who I'd made friends with uh, who wrote for a, um, um, a genre Actually, no, a movie uh, a website called Ain't It Cool News. Lo- oh, yeah. Lovely guy named Eric Vespi. And he said, mm-hmm. he said, listen, I've been trying to talk them into, I've been trying to talk the Alamo Draft House into doing a screening of the Monster Squad. And I said, well, I hope more people come than they did opening night. <laughs> <laughs> and they set it up and they flew me and, and a bunch of the cast out. And uh, it was Easter Sunday, 2007. Mm-hmm. And they had booked the theater, and it was sold out. Yep. It was so sold out that they had to do a second screening that, that, that was also sold out. That doesn't surprise me at all. And we showed this movie, and these people came in their Stephen King Rules T-shirts and their <laughs> Wolfman's Got Nards hats. Yeah. And it was clear that something had radically changed. And the first thing I always do when I get up at one of these screenings is say, where were you guys 20 years ago? <laughs> they were eight years old. They were eight years old. what it was. Yep. Amazing. Well, as the writing continued, well, first of all, we should mention that Shane Black, I think, may have been the first guy to ever sell a spec script for a million bucks, something like that. That sounds right. Yeah. And, uh, and has gone on to become a very successful writer and director mm-hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. And you are still working with him, and we'll get to that. But mm-hmm. I'd like to make a pit stop at Star Trek. Oh, okay. So Star Trek Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems kind of far afield, even though it's science fiction fantasy. Was it? Were you a big Star Trek fan from the beginning? I was kind of in high school. Um, original series was in uh, reruns at that time, and uh, uh, I, I did have a, f- a fondness for it. Um, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, a slavish, devoted. I wasn't a devotee, but um, not a trekkie. I, I, I was sort of ha- half. Mm-hmm. I was a half. Can you do that? Can you go to church sometimes? <laughs> yeah, um, just on Easter. But, but, but I, uh, I loved um, the Wrath of Khan. 
I think ah, the, I think okay. the, I think Star Trek Two is one of the great space operas of all time, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm very fond of the follow up uh, Star Trek Three. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I had a lot of affection for. For Star Trek. Nicholas but, Meyer did the second one, right? He did, yes. Yeah, who, who did The Amazing Time After Time. Yeah, a wonderful, yeah. wonderful writer. 7% very, very, solution. Yeah, really literary, and it has mm-hmm. the movie has that element to it. It has the, letter, the literaryness of it. And, and So that's what caught you up in the ethos of, of Star Trek? In a way, yeah, in a way. and But I didn't really follow, I have to confess, The Next Generation or... Deep Space Nine or Voyager, but um, it was just a, it was it was my TV agent making a call at the right time to Brandon Braga, who I guess knew who I was, and um, he loved Monster Squad as a kid, probably <laughs> probably not enough blood for Brandon, but um, there you go. But you know, and I went in and I was excited about depicting the pre-Kirk years. There was something very exciting about kind of this prequel idea. This is the first warp ship and this is the first warp crew and what are they going to see? Um, So I was very jazzed about that. And I also, you know, my career was not exactly... uh, you know, peaking at that point. So mm-hmm. to have a staff there are peaks, job. peaks and valleys are yeah. uh, very common in the creative life. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So that was a that was a that was a valley, and uh, to have a staff job on a on a big show like that. So you were in the writers' room. You were. Yep. It was a staff job. Tell me what that experience was like, because the writers' rooms I've been have all been anthologies. Mm. So there's not a writers' room other than like right. amazing stories. Well, that was we did. That was my experience on Tales, Tales from the Crypt. Right, we'll get to that one too. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, I made some really good friends there. There were some really wonderful writers there. Um, I just think the, I think the show was was not conceived perhaps as as uh, I would say as well as it could have been. It wasn't. It wasn't conceived in a way that allowed us to really explore new life and new civilizations. Right. Right. We ended up. Um, seeking out a lot of life and civilizations we'd seen in other Star Trek shows. Ah, okay. Uh, a little bit of rehash. Yeah. So the experience as a writer in features and as a director in features, you're pretty much on your own. You're doing work, uh, unless you're co-writing, something like that. Mm-hmm. But in the writer's room, what was that experience like? I mean, you're sharing, you're beating stories out with each other, mm-hmm. and you're also contributing to each other's screenplays as well. Correct. Right? Yeah. Tell me about that process and how it differed from the process uh, of making a feature film. Well, obviously, it's it, it's very different in terms of the writing because rather than sort of contemplating your navel and looking out the window and going <laughs> to get coffee and, and being on your own time, you're with other people and everyone, you know, should, should be chiming in ideas. And it's really where the showrunner comes in. To me, the showrunner in television is the equivalent of the director in movies. It's the, it's the guy or gal who is going to focus all that energy in the direction that it needs to go. And um, our showrunner wasn't always with us. Sometimes we sort of mm-hmm. did it on our own, and mm-hmm. then he would look at it afterwards. Um, so there was a disparity, I think, in the process. Um, but so it was much more collaborative process just in the writing stage yeah. that you would normally get as a director. You collaborate with 100 people, but here you're in a room with a dozen people. Right. And also, as you know, as a director, ultimately the buck stops with you. Right. Whereas with the, with the, with the staff, it, it stops with the showrunner. Right. So it's, um, it, it can be frustrating. It can be wonderful. Um, you know, you, you get 
you get credit for for anybody's good ideas if your name is on the script and <laughs> right. and anything that sucks you have to kind of take the hit for that too but if your name is on the script chances are there are several scenes that were written by others in the case of star trek enterprise for me if you look at the first one i did that i wrote uh, with uh, jeffrey combs as the right, the great jeffrey yeah, Combs, wonderful wonderful actor great yeah. guy um, that one was maybe 85%. That's pretty good batting act. average, yeah. The second one I wrote, now we're down to probably 45. Mm. And the third one and the last one was sort of unrecognizable. Really? But so, your name was the one on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing about television, folks. Remember, if you see written by on a TV show, you don't know who wrote it. Right. And did you feel comfortable in that role as one of a group of writers or it was just a different experience going from a different perspective uh, or do you feel more comfortable or more cut out for the work as a feature film writer or and or director well obviously directing is where i'm happiest because as i say it's all really happening in front of you and you know you're on the you're at the front of the field you're near the goalpost um, writing, whether it's in a group or by yourself, is a little bit more amorphous. And uh, uh, can we swear on this podcast? Yes, we fucking can. I had, I had a wonderful <laughs> editor that I worked that, that cut RoboCop three for me, and we were getting notes from the studio, and he goes, "I don't know, I feel like we're fucking a ghost." <laughs> and that's kind of what writing is, both by yourself and with a group. Yeah. Um, but I've become a huge fan of of television. Uh, I think in the last. Ten years, it's become fantastic. Some of the best I writing agree. I agree. there is is in um, episodic television and specifically serialized, mm-hmm. you know, cable um, series. So I'm a huge fan of. I mean, whatever magic tonic Vince Gilligan has. Oh man, uh, I can't. I mean, what I wouldn't give to just be in that room for a day. Yeah, and I didn't feel that way on Breaking Bad and yeah. Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul. It, sure. it, there's there's something just magic in the water there and mm-hmm. i would love to I'm, it's like a movie you love it's like how did you look at a kubrick movie like how did he do that yeah um and as i say i never wanted to be a writer but um i'm really appreciating good writing now more than i ever have well another thing you did was um tales from the crypt you did half a dozen or so of those that's as a writer right. including one of the three pilot episodes that's right the bob zemeckis one all through the house mm-hmm. is one of the great it was great in the amicus film the the joan collins version mm-hmm. and uh it was it was great in the comic book and this one and once again mary ellen trainer who was bob's ex-wife bob yeah. zemeckis's ex-wife yes. was the lead in in your version. Right. And, and she had been the mom in Monster Squad. Exactly. So I, miss, so I miss her dearly. She was a lovely lady. Yeah, she was great. And uh, so tell me about that. I mean, you'd obviously seen the 1970s version. With Joan Collins, yeah. And what was the experience? I mean, Zemeckis directed one of my Amazing Stories mm-hmm. scripts. So what was your experience with Bob in that? Because oh, he's it, a writer as well. Sure, yeah. No, it was a, it was absolutely a joy. I mean, you have to understand, there's, there's a handful of people who... Or you know, who, who work in this business, who I just you know idolize, and he uh, has been was one at that time and had been for a while. So it was really Joel Silver, I, I and and Dick Donner and and Walter Hill, and Walter yeah. Hill, and and David Geiler had formed this little cabal to do the Tales from the Crypt, and I had sort of, and I sort of knew all of them. 
mm-hmm. f- because of that 15 minutes of, of heat. Right, yeah, <laughs> uh, I know that. And Gordon Carroll, who was a, who was a mentor of mine too, who I, yeah. who I miss dearly. Um, so I knew all those guys, and Joel... Uh, who obviously had made a lethal weapon with Shane, and he was he was asking all of my buddies from college, the Pata Guys group. Ah, uh, like, okay. What about that? What about your friend Bob? I, I'm doing this movie, Action Jackson, with with Carl Weathers. Maybe Bob will write it. Yeah. So Bob did write. It. <laughs> That's so great. all of those movies, you have people that hung out at our house back in the '80s, um, and Joel called me, and it, we, we talked about the peaks and valleys, and this was a valley. And uh, I needed a job, and Joel said, I, I write the first Tales from the Crypt. It was actually the first one that was made. Yes. It was an all through the house. And I said, um, okay. He goes, Bob Zemeckis is directing it. And I was like, I, you know, took a, took a deep breath and said, <laughs> did you just say what I think you said? And uh, He's a magician. He's he, not just a filmmaker. He's oh, a no, magician. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. And sometimes he'll make a whole movie just because he's got a trick he wants to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wonderful guy, great director, great um, just just salt of the earth. And but I did ask him. I said, "How are we going to top the Amicus movie? Because that was really scary." Yeah. And he goes, "It's a suspense piece. We're going to make it a suspense. We're going to just keep keep tightening the, the the corkscrews." So we broke it together. It was kind of what we talked about with staff writing and television. But it was just me and Bob in his bungalow at Universal. Yeah. And, okay, now the phone rings. But the phone's in the other room. But she can't go there because maybe Santa's. And and we just kept trying to figure out how to throw obstacles in Mary Ellen's way. Nice. And it was so much fun. And he and I wrote the script based on what we came up with. And he shot it exactly what I wrote. Wow. Yeah. Did not change a word. That's incredible. And uh, I was so overjoyed. And then we did uh, together a uh, script that wasn't made, but I don't know if you heard about the follow-up. We were going to do Two-Fisted Tales. Yes, yes. And so we wrote a Two-Fisted Tale that was a World War II, Alistair MacLean, you know, uh, uh, behind enemy lines adventure story. Right. Which I loved. And um, But sadly, that one was never made, but... Working with Bob was a dream. Well, that was great. Were you on staff on Tales from the Crypt, or was there a staff? There was no staff. They were all written independently. This was before, uh, was it, who was it, Gil Adler? Yeah, Gil Adler uh, came in, and he and his writing partner. Right, and, uh, and Katz. Uh, Alan Katz. Yeah, yeah. And, and, but prior to... I did one of those. Did you? Yeah, I directed one. Second season? First uh, season? No, it was like five, season five or six. Because what they did was... And what I love about the first the first two couple seasons is it was really just like Joel just throwing throwing things at people like you know hey Tom Hanks you want to do Tom a movie? Hanks you yeah. want to do one you know yeah. I, you know hey hey Arnold why don't you direct one yeah it's like well, you really want Arnold direct one yeah yeah he'll do great <laughs> yeah. to me Arnold Schwarzenegger did and, and, directed and, one yeah. yeah he did and and it was like he gave writers a shot he gave actors a shot he you know Tom Holland did a couple yeah I mean yeah. it was just and there was no kind of overriding. There was no showrunner, per se. Right. Well, that's what it was on Masters of Horror. We didn't have a writing staff other than me. Right. And all of them were just independently written. Yeah. You know, they were uh, what's good whoever about, had a good idea. Right. And what's yeah. good about that is that you have – is that they're all different. If you look yeah. at the Tom Hanks episode and then the next one is, you know, Chris Wallace, you know, yeah. or, or mine, and you'll see – Sometimes they're really broad and the comedy yeah. is like really over the top. And then you'll have like this sort of dark 
unsettling William Friedkin feel to it. Oh, Friedkin. And, yeah. and that comes from nobody saying – that comes from no tone meetings. Right. Which right. all TV has tone meetings. That you encourage the personality of the filmmaker. Right. And that's what Masters of Horror was about. There was never a tone meeting and none of them were alike right. except that you know, we alternated directors of photography and the right. like. But, um, yeah, it became the boobs and blood show after a while, <laughs> uh, Tales from the Crypt. And, uh, but the pilot was really three 30-minute shows. That's and it right. was Walter Hill and Bob Zemeckis and Richard Donners. That's and right. all of them were great, and they were completely different from each other. Yep. And that was – it was the perfect way to set up what this series was. Mm-hmm. So – and you all and written by the Pata guys, by the way. Robert Renault wrote the second one with Bill Sadler with Walter Hill. Right. And Terry Black wrote the Dick Donner episode, and Terry is Shane's brother. Wow. Yep. Well, speaking of the Blacks and your relationship with Shane, mm-hmm. you've got something that you've been working on with Shane Black now and will be out soon. And it's a completely new take on Predator. It is. I mean, uh, it's a sequel to the first movie. Oh, it, really? So it ignores it, everything in between? No, it acknowledges the second. It acknowledges the first movie. It mentions the characters in the first movie. It, it acknowledges and mentions the, some characters or character in the second movie, um, and may or may not refer to the others. Mm-hmm. But it really is sort of a, a, a new movie that we hope if you aren't invested in The Predator, you can go and have a rollicking good time anyway. Well, your personality as a writer and filmmaker and Shane Black's personality as a writer and filmmaker already make it something very different. Mm. And how would you, what would you say the attitude of the movie is? Uh, It's a throwback to the kinds of movies that Shane and I uh, bonded over when we first met at UCLA, mm-hmm. which is you know adventure, uh, science fiction, characters, humor, um, a little bit like that, like that World War II uh, uh, script that I, that I wrote with Bob Z. I mean, you know, we said let's do the Dirty Dozen. Mm-hmm. What would that look like now? Right. But the other thing that we've done very consciously is to take the archetypes that people recognize from that first movie and. Because the world's changed so much, that kind of 80s macho Carl Weathers and Arnold's arms slapping together in a big <laughs> McTiernan close-up. I mean, yeah. there's a there's – a, I, I, I think McTiernan's a great director. Don't get me wrong. But there's, yeah. there's a cheese factor in the 80s that, uh, that you can see in, in my movies and a lot of really good movies. And the, the, the political landscape is very different now. And Shane and I both felt like, you know, soldiers are not what's – now what soldiers were there. In the Reagan era, it was very, macho, you know, very macho, very kind of um, patriotism. And, and we're seeing veterans now who are being sort of tossed aside after doing their, their duties. And uh, we thought, well, that's, that's Kelly's heroes. That's the dirty dozen. That's what we want is we don't right. want the guys you expect to be the heroes. You want the guys who've been tossed aside and, and ignored and are considered screw-ups. You want them to save us from the Predator. Right. So that's the tone of the movie. So it's also a blockbuster. 
you haven't done a whole lot of blockbuster work. And, and what was that experience like working on a movie? And, and you were around during production all the way to the end, mm-hmm. too. You weren't just, here's the script, go make it. Right. Now, we were writing on the, on the set. Uh, Shane's approach is really educational for me because I'm, I've always been kind of get the script right, let actors um, contribute and and dovetail it to this, the locations that you find. And, and there's a certain amount of, of finessing that you do. But I've never experienced what Shane does, which is we rehearse with the actors and one of them may say, you know, what if I have Tourette's? <laughs> and Shane goes, great. <laughs> and that means that every scene with that character now, we go through and have to redo. Right. Um, it was really interesting on a, on a movie of this. I won't tell you what the budget is, but it's a big movie. Yeah. And I'm there, and, and I go, what if the kid says this? And Shane goes, that's great. And he does, and there it is. And, and you just go ahead and do it <laughs> without worrying about the repercussions. It's very And if you come up with an idea that takes a while to do it, you've got the time and money to yep. do it. Yep, And if something doesn't work as well as you'd like... You rewrite it and you shoot it again. Right. Reshoots are always a part of the blockbuster package. Yep, yep. There's budget put aside for that. Yeah. So how would you describe yourself as a filmmaker or as a storyteller? Let's make it more broad than that. I'd like to think that, I, that the only reason I can't answer that is that I'm a perpetual student. I'm constantly... Learning, and I don't mean this in a kind of self-aggrandizing way. I don't mean like you know, I'm, I'm, it's not false humility. I genuinely, I mean, Shane and I are writing a pilot now for Warner Brothers, and I've been wrestling with the finale for a while. And I went and saw um, Solo, the new mm-hmm. Star Wars story, and I loved it. I thought it was great. And I came home and I went, I got to throw this out and I got to start all over again. This finale does not work because it has to be reversal after reversal after reversal, and I mm. forgot to put in the reversals. Mm. For those of you at home, if you don't know what a reversal is, it's in a scene, you think one thing's going to happen, but the thing you hoped wouldn't happen does happen. And then when you think that you can solve that problem, another thing that you don't want to happen happens, um, and it, it, the scene's much better now. So I, I'll, I'll, I can't describe what I do except that I... I, I try to get better every time. Perpetual evolution, perhaps. Perpetual evolution, which happens to be the theme of The Predator. There we go. <laughs> and on that note, Fred Decker, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's great. This has been a, a, a joy. Thank you. All right. We'll do it again soon. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.